0: To succeed in Microsoft, you have to be laser-focused on what you are doing. This is the thing you can change. Focus on the problems you have to solve. Do your job and be very good at it. Those are the most important rules I have used in my career in Microsoft.
1: Microsoft Research works at the cutting edge. But how much do we know about the people behind the science and technology that we create? This is What's Your Story, and I'm Johannes Geerke. In my 10 years with Microsoft across product and research, I've been continuously excited and inspired by the people I work with, and I'm curious about how they became the talented and passionate people they are today. So I sat down with some of them. Now, I'm sharing their stories with you. In this podcast series, you'll hear from them about how they grew up, the critical choices that shape their lives and their advice to others looking to carve a similar path. In this episode, I'm talking with partner software architect Ivan Tashev in the anechoic chamber in Building 99 on our Redmond, Washington campus. Constructed of concrete, rubber and sound-absorbing panels, making it impervious to outside noise, this chamber has played a significant role in Ivan's 25 years with Microsoft. He's put his expertise in audio processing to work in the space, helping to design and study the audio components of such products as Kinect, Teams and HoloLens. Here's my conversation with Ivan, beginning with his childhood in Bulgaria, where he was raised by two history teachers.
0: So I'm born in a city called Jambol in Bulgaria, my origin country. Uh, The city is created 2000 years BC and now sits on the two shores of the river called Tunja. Mm-hmm. He always have been an important transportation and agricultural center in the entire region. And I grew up there in a family of two lecturers. My parents were teaching history. And they were they love to travel. So everywhere I go, I had to, excellent tourist guides with me. This in this place happened, this and this in this in this year. Were the
1: quizzes afterwards? Or? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it happened that I was more fond to engineering, technology, math, all of the devices, it just mechanical things just fascinated me. Uh, when I read in a book about the parachutes, I... Decided that I'll have to try this and jump into it from the from a uh, second floor of a of building with an umbrella to see how much it will slow me down. It didn't.
1: And how did you did you get? Hem-
0: oh, I ended with a twisted ankle for oh, okay, quite a while.
1: Not <laughs> nothing more. You <nothing> <laughs> always hands-on. That's what you're telling me, right? Always the experimenter.
0: Yep. Uh, so I was doing a lot of this stuff, but also I was very strong in math. Uh, Happened that had a good teachers in math and going to the, those competitions of mathematical mm-hmm. Olympiads was something I started since fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every year they were well organized on school, city, regional level. Mm-hmm. And I remember how in my sixth grade, I won the first place of original Olympiad and the prize was eight millimeters movie camera. That, I would say, changed my life. This is my hobby since then. I have been holding this a movie camera of several generations everywhere I go and travel. In Moscow, in Kiev, in Venice, everywhere my parents were traveling. I was shooting eight uh, millimeters films and I continue this till today. Today I have a much better equipment, but also very powerful computers to do the processing. I produce three to five Blu-ray discs pretty much every year. Performances of the Bul- in, of the choir or the dancing groups in the Bulgarian Culture and Heritage Center of Seattle, mostly.
1: Wow, uh, that's fascinating. And was that hobby somehow connected to your, you know, entry into, you know, science and and then actually doing a PhD and then actually going and, you know, going into audio audio processing.
0: The. Mathematical high school I attended in in the city where I'm born was one of the fifth, one of the five strongest in the country. Which means, first, math every day, two days twice, physics every day. Around ninth grade at the end we finished the entire high school curriculum and started to study differentials and integrals, something which is more towards the university math courses. But this means that I had no problems entering any of the, uh, of the universities with mathematical exams. I didn't even have to do that because I qualified in one year, my 11th grade, to become member of the Bulgarian national teams in, for the International Math Olympia and for International Physics Olympia. And they actually coincided, so I had to choose one and I chose physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And since then, I'm actually saying that math is the language of physics, physics is the language of engineering. And that kind of showed the tendency. So literally, I was 11th grade, and I could literally point and choose any of the universities. And I decided to go and study electronic engineering in the Technical University of Sofia.
1: Mm -hmm. And then how did you end up in the US?
0: Uh, So, That's another interesting story. I defended my graduated from the university, defended my PhD thesis. It was something amazing. What what, what was it on actually? It was a control system for a telescope, but not just for observation of celestial objects, but for tracking and ranging the distance to the satellites. Literally, one measurement is: you shoot with a laser, it goes to the satellite, which is. 60 centimetres in diameter, it returns back and you measure the time with accuracy of 100 picoseconds. And this was part of studying how the Earth rotates, how the satellites move. The data, there were around 44 stations like this in the entire Earth and the data were public and used it by NASA for finalizing the models for those satellites which later will became GPS. Used it by Russians to finalize the models for their GLONASS system. Used it by people who studied the precession and of the rotating, rotation of the Earth. Uh, a lot of interesting PhD uh, the, the thesis came from the data from the results of this device, including tides. For example, I found that Balkan Peninsula moves up and down two meters every day because of the tides. So the earth is liquid inside mm-hmm. and there are tides under us in the same way as with the oceans.
1: Oh wow, super interesting. I actually wanted just to come back, so just to get the right kind of comparison for the for, for, for the unit. And so picoseconds, right? Because I know for the nanosecond is because of the nanoseconds
0: is one on minus ninth picosecond is one on minus
1: 12. Okay, good, good. Just to put that in perspective. Thank you. Exactly. exactly.
0: Uh, So this was the the accuracy, the light goes 30 centimeters for that time, Mm -hmm. for one nanosecond. And we needed to go way shorter than that. But why this project was so fascinating for me, can you imagine this is 1988 people having Apple II or compatible computers playing with the joystick, a very famous game when you have the crosshair in the space and you <laughs> shoot with laser the satellites. Absolutely. And I was sitting behind the ocular and moving a joystick and shooting at the real satellites.
1: I, not, not with a golden straw, of course.
0: <laughs> no, the, uh, the energy of the laser was one jowl. Yeah. You can put your hand in front, okay. uh, but very short, mm-hmm. and one nanosecond. So it can go and turn, and you do have the resolution to measure the distance. And after that, I became assistant professor in the Technical University of Sofia. How I came to Microsoft is a consequence of that. So I was teaching data and signal processing, and the changes in Europe already started. Think about 1996, and then a friend of mine came back from a scientific institution from the former Eastern Germany. And he basically shared how much money West Germany has poured to the East German economy to change it, to bring it up to the standards, and that it was, I think, 900 billion Deutsche Marks.
1: But that's and when after the-, the After war. the changes, yeah, after exactly. the
0: after uh, basically uh, the East and uh, West Germany united. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then this was in the first nine years of the changes. And then we looked at each each other at the eyes and said, wait a minute, if you model this as a first order system, this is the time constant. And the process you will finish after two times more of the time constant and they will need another 900 billion marks. You cannot imagine how exact became that prediction when this Germany will be on equal economically to the West Germany. Mm-hmm. But then we looked at each other eyes and said, what about Bulgaria? We don't have West Bulgaria. And uh, then uh, this started to make me think mm-hmm. that most probably there will be technical university of software. But in this economical crisis, there will be no money for research, mm-hmm. no for uh, development, for building skills, for going to conferences. And then pretty much around the same time, somebody said, hey, you know, Microsoft is coming here to hire. And I sent my resume knowing that, okay, I'm an assistant professor, I can program. Mm -hmm. But that actually happened that I can program quite well, implementing all of those control systems for the Mm -hmm. telescope, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And uh, literally… And so there was a programming testing as part of the interview? Oh, the interview questions were
0: three or four people one hour asking programming questions. The opening was for a software engineer.
1: Okay. Like on a whiteboard, blackboard.
0: Like on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And then I got an email saying that, Ivan, we like it, your performance. We want to bring it to Redmond for further interviews. I flew here in 1997. After the interviews, I returned to my hotel and the offer was waiting for me on the reception. Oh, wow, that's fast. So, uh, this is how we decided to move here in Redmond. And I started and went through, through two full shipping cycles of programmers.
1: So, so you, were, you didn't start out in MSR, right? Nope. Where, where were you first?
0: Uh, so actually, I was lucky enough. Both products were version 1.0. Mm-hmm. One of them was COM+. Plus. This is the transactional server and the COM technology, which is the backbone of Windows.
1: Mm-hmm. And is the component model, basically, at that point in time?
0: Common object model, basically creating an object, uh, calling, uh, getting the interface, and calling the methods there. And my uh, experience with low-level programming on assembly language and microprocessor actually came here very handy. We shipped this as a part of Windows 2000, and the second product was the Microsoft Application Center 2000, which was, okay, cluster management
1: system. But both of them had nothing to do with signal processing, right?
0: Nope. Okay. except there were some load balancing in application center, but they had nothing to do with signal processing, okay. just pure programming skills. Right. And then in the year of 2000, there was up for the first Tech Fest, And I went to see it Say, wait a minute. There are PhDs in this company and they're doing this amazing research. My place is here.
1: And TechFest, maybe you want to explain briefly what TechFest is?
0: Tech Fest, is an annual event when researchers from Microsoft Research go and show and demonstrate technologies they have created.
1: So it used to be like in the Microsoft Conference Center, like a really big It used to be on the Microsoft event. Conference right.
0: Center and basically visited by six, seven thousand Microsoft employees. And usually Microsoft Research, all of the branches were showing around 150 demos. And it was amazing. And that was the first such event, pretty much. Oh, For the very first time The very first TechFest, and pretty much not only me, but the rest of Microsoft Corporation learned that we do have a research organization.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In short, in three months I started in Microsoft
1: research. How it, did you get a job here then? How did that happen?
0: So seriously, visiting TechFest made me to think seriously that I should return back to research. Mm-hmm. And open it up career website with potential openings and there were two suitable for me. One of them was Enrico malver signal oh, processing okay, yeah. group yeah. and the other was in communication, collaboration and multimedia group led by Anup Gupta. Mm-hmm. So I sent my resume to both of them, Anup replied in 15 minutes, next week I was on informational with him. When Rico replied, I already had an offer from Manu to (laughs) to join the team.
1: Got it. And that's that's where your focus on communication came from then?
0: Yes. So our first project was uh, Ringcam. Okay. So it's a 360 camera, Uh eight-element microphone array in the base. Uh And the purpose was to record the meetings, to do a uh, meeting uh, diarization. to have a 360 view, but also based on the signal processing and phase detection, right. to have a speaker view, separate camera for the whiteboard, the based based on who is speaking, based on the direction from the microphone array. Honestly, even today, when you read our 2002 paper, Ross Kettler was creator of this, the, the 360 camera, I was doing the microphone array. Even today, when you read our 2002 paper, you say, wow, that was something super exciting and super advanced.
1: And that, then, you brought it all the way to shipping, right, and became a Microsoft product.
0: So yes, at, the, uh, at some point, uh, it was actually uh, monitored personally by, by Bill Gates. And at some point, uh, so we he are, was
1: PMing it basically. Okay, oh,
0: he basically was. He was just aware of it. I, I personally installed a, 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 the distributed meeting system in Bill Gates' conference room. Wow. Mm-hmm. We do have a basically a three hundred and sixty images with Bill Gates and at- at- attending a meeting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it was believed that this is something important, mm-hmm. and a product team was formed to make it a product. Right. Uh, Ross Cutler left Microsoft Research and became architect of that team, and this what this is what became Microsoft Roundtable device. It was licensed to Polycom, and for many years was sold as Polycom X five thousand.
1: Yeah, actually, I remember it. When, when I was in many meetings, they used to have exactly the device in the middle. And the nice thing was that even somebody who was remote, right, you could see all the people around the table and you mm-hmm. got through this really nice view of who was next to whom and not not sort of the transactional windows that you have right now in, in Teams. So it's a really interesting view.
0: So as you can see, very exciting start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then Anoop went and became Bill Gates' the technical assistant and uh, signal processing people from his team were merged with Rico Malvar's signal processing team and this is how I continued to work on microphone arrays Mm -hmm. and speech enhancement and this is what I do till today.
1: And you mentioned like like amazing products from Microsoft like Kinect and so on right and so you were involved in the like audio processing layer of all of those and they were actually then part of it was designed here in this room? Yep, so tell me about that. You know at,
0: at the time I was fascinated by a problem which was considered theoretically impossible. Uh-huh. Multi-channel acoustic echo cancellation. There was a paper written in 1998 by the inventor of the acoustic echo cancellation mm-hmm. from Bell Labs, stating that stereo acoustic echo cancellation is not possible.
1: Mm-hmm. And he proved it, or what? Uh, I mean, he, he just look. It, it's it?
0: very simple. You have two unknowns: the two impulse responses from the left and the right loudspeaker, and one equation. That's the microphone signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I did was to circumvent this. When you start Kinect, you'll hear some melodic signals and this is the calibration. At least you know the relation between the two unknowns. Mm -hmm. And now you have one unknown which is basically uh, discovered using an adaptive filter. Mm -hmm. The classic acoustic echo cancellation. So technically, Kinect became the first device ever shipped with surround sound acoustic echo cancellation. The first device ever that could recognize human speech from four and a half meters while the loudspeakers are blasting and gamers are listening to very loud levels of their loudspeakers.
1: So maybe just tell the audience a little bit, what does it mean to do acoustic echo cancellation? What is it actually good for and what does it do?
0: So. In general, speech enhancement is removing unwanted noises and sounds from the desired signal. Mm -hmm. Some of them we don't know anything about, which is the surrounding noise. Mm -hmm. For some of them, we have a pretty good understanding. This is the sound from our own loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. So you send the signal to the loudspeakers and then try to estimate on the fly how much of it is captured by the microphone and subtract this estimation, and this is called acoustic echo cancellation. This is part of every single speaker phone. This is one of the oldest
1: applications of the adaptive filtering. So, so, what the right way to think about this is that noise cancellation is canceling unwanted noise from the outside, unknown noises, whereas you know acoustic echo cancellation is canceling the own noise that actually. Which cancelling. we know about, right? Okay,
0: and uh, that was an amazing work, but. It also started actually in TechFest. I designed this surround sound echo cancellation and my target was at the time we had a Windows Media Center. It was a device designed to stay in a media room and controlling all of those loudspeakers. And I made sure to bring all of the VPs of Windows and Windows Media Center and then I noticed that I started repeatedly to see some faces which I didn't invite, I didn't know, but they came over and over and over. And after the meeting, after the after Techfest, a person called me and said, look, we are working on a thing which it, your technology fits very well. And this is how I started to work for Kinect. And in the process of the work, I had to go and talk with industrial designers because of the design of the microphones with electrical designers because of the circuitry and then requirements for identical microphone channels and with the software team which had to implement my algorithms and uh, this actually at some point i had an office in their building and was literally embedded working with them day and night, especially at the end of the shipping cycle, uh, of the shipping cycle when the device had to go out.
1: And this was not a time when you could go like in the device and, you know, update software on the device or anything. The device would go out as is, right?
0: Actually, this was one of the first devices like oh, it, that. It, it could? Yep. Wow, uh, already we know, Kinects were manufactured, they are boxed. Mm-hmm. They are already distributed to the to the stores. But there was a deadline when we had to provide the image when you connect it, connect to your Xbox, and it has to be uploaded.
1: But no, I get that. But then once it was actually connected to the Xbox, you could still update the yes. firmware on the? Oh, yes. Wow, that's, really, that's really cool, okay.
0: And, uh, but it also has a deadline. Yeah. So uh, that was amazing trip, literally left us, all of us, breathless. Uh, there are plenty of serious technological challenges to overcome. Mm-hmm. A lot of first as a technology is basically bro- uh, was brought to this device to make sure. And this is the audio. And next to us were the video people and the gaming people and the designers. And everybody was A, excited, B, working like hell so we can basically bring this to uh, the customers.
1: Wow, that's super exciting. I mean even just being involved in, I and mean, I think that's one of the really big things that's so much fun here at Microsoft, right? That you can get whatever you do in the hands of, you know, millions if not hundreds of millions of people, right? Um, com- coming back to, um, you know, your work now in, in audio signal processing and um, that whole field is also being revolutionized like many other fields right now with AI, right? Absolutely. Um, photography, one of the other fields that you're very passionate about, is also being revolutionized with AI, of also course. Also revolution, um,
0: revolutionized.
1: You know, in, in terms of changes that you've made in your career, how do you deal with such changes? And, and what were, you know, this is something where, where you have been an expert in a certain class of algorithms, and also suddenly it says, this is completely new technology coming along and we need to shift. How, how are you dealing with this? Um, how do you deal with this personally? In Let some sense, you're, you're in... becoming a little bit of a dinosaur, In in a little bit while. Oh, not at at, all. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. Exactly. How did you overcome that? Uh,
0: So, first, each one of us was working and trying to produce better and better technology. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the signal processing, speech enhancement, most of the audio processing was based on statistical signal processing. Mm -hmm. You build the statistical models, distributions, uh, uh, hidden Markov models, and Get it's certain like improvement. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And all of us started to sense that this though this set of tools we have started to saturate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was simple. We use the simple models, we can derive, let's say, speech uh, uh, is Gaussian distribution, noise is Gaussian distribution, you derive the suppression rule. But this is simplifying the reality. Mm-hmm. If you apply a more precise model of the speech signal distribution, mm-hmm. then you cannot derive easily the suppression rule. For example, in the case of noise suppression.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was literally hanging in the air that we have to find a way, a way to learn from data. Mm-hmm. And I have several papers actually before the neural networks to appear, mm-hmm. that uh, let's get a big data set and learn from the data. This is so more data-driven
1: approach already.
0: Data-driven approach, I have several papers on that. And by the way, mm-hmm. they were not quite well accepted by my audio processing mm-hmm. community. All of them are published on a bordering conferences, not in the core conferences. I got mm-hmm. those papers rejected. Mm-hmm. But then appeared neural networks. Mm-hmm. Not that they were something new. We had neural networks in 80s. Mm-hmm and it, they didn't work well. The new, the miracle was that now we had an algorithm which allowed us to train them. Literally next year after the uh, the work of Jeff Hinton was published in the implementation of Deep Learning, several things happened. At first, my colleagues in the speech research group started to do neural network-based speech recognition, and I and my, and my audio group started to do Neural network-based speech enhancement. This is the year of 2013 or 2014. Mm -hmm. We had a speech, neural network-based speech enhancement algorithm surpassing the existing statistical signal processing algorithm
1: literally instantly. Mm -hmm. It was big, it was heavy, but better. When when did the first of these ship? What, what can you tell any interesting stories about uh,
0: The first neural network-based speech enhancement algorithm was shipped in 2020 in Teams. Okay. okay. We had to work with that team for quite a while. Actually, it four years took us to work with Teams to find... You see, here in the research, industrial research lab, we have a little bit different perspective. It's not just to make it to work. It's not just to make it our technology. That technology has to be shippable. That it has to meet a lot of other requirements and limitations in memory and in CPU and in reliability. It's one thing to publish a paper with very cool results with your limited data set and completely different to throw this algorithm in the wild where it can face everything. Mm-hmm. And this is what, why it cost us around four years before to ship the first prototype in Teams. Mm-hmm.
1: That makes sense. And I think a lot of the infrastructure was also not there at that point in time early on, right, in terms of, you know, how do you upload a model to the client, even in terms of all the model profiling, you know, architecture search, quantization, and other tooling that now exists where you can take a model and then squeeze it on the right kind of computational footprint. That's correct. So you did all of that manually, I guess, at that point in time?
0: Initially, yes. But new architectures arrived, Mm -hmm. the cloud. Mm wow. It was a savior. Mm -hmm. You can press a button, you can get 100 or 1,000 machines. You can run in parallel multiple architectures. You can really select the optimal from every single standpoint. Actually, what we did is we ended up with a set of speech enhancement algorithms given computing power, we can tell you what is the best architecture for Mm -hmm. this. Or if you want to hit up this improvement, I can tell you how much CPU you will need for that. But that trade-off is also something very typical for industrial research lab and not very well understood in academia.
1: Makes sense. Let me me switch gears one, one last time. Namely, I mean, you have made quite a few changes in your career, you know, throughout, right? You started as an assistant professor and became sort of a core developer. Then, you know, we're a member of a signal processing group, and now you're sort of driving a lot of the audio processing research for the company. How do you deal with this change, and do you have any advice for our listeners on how to, you know, keep your career going, especially as the rate of change seems to be accelerating all the time?
0: So, for 25 years in Microsoft Corporation, I have learned several rules I follow. The first is dealing with ambiguity. It is not just change in the technology, but changes in the of the teams, their organizations, etc. etc. Simply put, there are things you cannot change. There are things you cannot hide. Just accept them and go on. And here comes the second rule. To succeed in Microsoft, you have to be laser-focused on what you are doing. This is the thing you can change. Focus on the problems you have to solve. Do your job and be very good at it. That's, this is the most important. Those are the two most important rules. I have used it in my career in Microsoft.
1: Okay. Super, super interesting, Ivan. Um, thank you very much for this amazing conversation.
0: Thank you for invitation, Johannes.
1: To learn more about Ivan's work or to see photos of Ivan pursuing his passion for shooting film and video, visit aka.ms researcherstories.